As you know, we've been studying Psalm 23 here uh, at the Super Study this summer, and uh, I've been looking for all the best resources that are available out there, obviously from my own study, but also to serve as supplements uh, for you as, as we study this together. And uh, we've already recommended uh, Philip Keller's classic book, A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm. Hopefully you've all got a copy of that. You're reading through it and uh, you're finding great uh, encouragement for your soul. It's a very encouraging book, isn't it? And uh, I, I just have enjoyed reading it, rereading it, uh, just in preparation for these messages. But I also came across another excellent little resource that I wanted to highly recommend that uh, all of you get. Uh, we ordered uh, special copies of this for this series. It's called Psalm 23, uh, the beloved psalm brought to life for today's readers. And this is uh, one of those little booklets by Rose Publishers. If you've ever been in our resource center, you see the little rack. You probably bumped into it when you walked into the resource center. It's there. and has a bunch of different pamphlets like this uh, that they do just a super job, just uh, really consolidating, simplifying, summarizing key concepts in Scripture. And so they did one uh, here on Psalm 23. And as you can see, it just kind of opens up like this. And, and uh, you got kind of two sides, but it's the, basically Psalm 23 uh, uh, every one of these panels uh, takes one of these phrases uh, that we've been looking at, each one of these verses, and expounds on it just briefly, gives you some supplemental verses and, and just some uh, illustrations and things. So uh, just a really helpful little tool. I'd encourage you to purchase one of these, just a few bucks, and uh, you can maybe stick it in the front of your Bible, and when we're done, you can stick it on your shelf where you keep all your other uh, Christian books and resources but uh, again, these will be available in the Resource Center over the next few weeks and would encourage you to grab a copy of it. I think you'd be really, really encouraged by it. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn back to Psalm 23. And I want to read uh, this psalm for us again as we begin tonight, Psalm 23. And uh, we're going to be zeroing in on verse 3 tonight. David writes, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want... He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord, we come to you tonight. We thank you for um, inspiring this great psalm uh, by your spirit through the pen of David. And I pray as we uh, seek to understand uh, what each one of these verses uh, means and how it applies to our lives, that you would help us tonight to uh, find great blessing and great joy and even great conviction in the fact that you promise to restore our souls and to lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And so, Lord, grant us illumination now that we might understand your word and that you would make application of it to our lives, that we would be encouraged and challenged together tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're like me, you grew up learning Mother Goose nursery rhymes. Anybody know, know Mother Goose nursery rhymes? No? Just, you're going to leave me hanging out there, okay? I'm the only dork in here who learned uh, these Mother Goose nursery rhymes. Well, probably one of the most well-known uh, Mother Goose nursery rhymes is Little Bo Peep. You familiar with Little Bo Peep? It goes like this. Little Bo Peep has lost her sheep and doesn't know where to find them. Leave them alone, and they'll come home wagging their tails behind them. You say, what's the moral of that silly, silly little children's rhyme? I'll tell you the moral, the moral of that. Little Bo Peep was a lame shepherd. Okay? Not only did she lose her sheep, she didn't do anything about it. And she assumed that they would find their way home by themselves. And I'm so glad that the Lord is my shepherd and not little Bo Peep. Because first of all, Jesus never loses any of his sheep. John chapter 6, verse 39, we're going to look at that this Sunday as we look at this discourse uh, of Jesus talking about him being the bread of life. But in John chapter 6, verse 39, 
He says this, this is the will of him who sent me that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Talking about those people that God chose before the foundation of the earth to give to his son as a gift, right? Those are the people that he would not lose a one. John chapter 10, we've already looked here a number of times. This is the parable of the good shepherd. And in the same context, in John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Obviously, a reference to eternal security, right, that you cannot lose your salvation. John chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer, listen to what Jesus prayed. John 17, verse 12, he's praying to God, the Father, regarding his disciples. He says, well, I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so the scriptures would be fulfilled. Obviously, that's a reference to Judas, right? The son of perdition, he, uh, when, when uh, Jesus was arrested in chapter 18, just turn over another page, John, John 18, verse 9, Jesus said, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these go their way. In other words, hey, let these other guys go. You're looking for me. Here I am. I'm Jesus. This is the one you came to arrest. Let these other guys go. Let my disciples go to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. And if you're one of Christ's disciples, if you're one of his sheep, that applies to you, that he will never lose you uh, for any reason. And so I'm thankful that the Lord is my shepherd and not little Bo Peep, right? Because first of all, Jesus never loses any of his sheep. Secondly, Jesus never leaves his straying sheep to fend for themselves or to find their way home by themselves. Matthew 18 You can turn over there, Matthew 18, verse 11, right before Jesus gives instructions for church discipline, or as we would call it here, uh, restoration, restoring a sinning brother or sister in Christ, right before that, the context uh, is is, uh, Matthew 18, verse 11, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And then Jesus said this, what do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. And again, this was obviously a reference to Jesus Christ. He was talking about himself. He's the son of man who came to seek and to save that which was lost. And so he said, listen, there there, there may be 99 in the fold, but I know I've got 100 sheep and one's lost. I'm going to leave those 99 there and I'm going to go out and find that lost sheep. We've got a, a painting in our office center that's called The Lost Sheep, and it's based on this passage, and it's a beautiful picture. If you've not seen it yet, I'd encourage you to pop in our office center here before you leave tonight and, and look at it. And it's a picture of this beautiful pasture land uh, where there's a whole flock of sheep out there grazing in the green fields. And then up on this cliff in this crevice is, is a one little sheep that's, that's stuck, that's caught in a bush and, and, and has wandered away from the flock. And then here comes the shepherd around the cliff's edge to rescue that little sheep. And it, to me, it's a great reminder of what we're all about here at Lakeside Bible Church. You know, we're about rescuing lost sheep. And that's my job, that's your job, that's all of our jobs, is is to rescue lost sheep like Christ would. And so Christ graciously goes after us when we stray spiritually. And so we've been learning in our study here of Psalm 23 that the Bible often likens us to sheep, but specifically to sheep who go astray. Who, who regularly wander off into sin. Listen to a few uh, references to how we are prone to wander. Psalm 119, verse 176. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. 
Isaiah 53, verse 6, this is one that you probably are familiar with. Isaiah 53, verse 6, all of us like sheep have what? Gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And then James, in the New Testament, James chapter 5, verse 19, says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And then lastly, a verse we looked at last week that's really uh, the, the basis of our title uh, of, of this series, Delighting in and Depending on the Great Shepherd of Our Soul, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. And I think this biblical concept is is captured in, in those timeless, convicting words of come thou fount of every blessing, that one line that whenever we read it, um, it's hard to not have tears come to our eyes when it says, prone to wander, Lord, I, what? Feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And that is indeed the regretful heart cry of every honest believer whether you've been a Christian just for a few months or you've been a Christian for 50 years, there's not a member of God's flock who hasn't wandered spiritually for a season, even if it was just in our minds and our hearts. Even the great King David, the the man after God's own heart, the only one in the Bible ever given that title, ever referred to as the man after God's own heart, Even he foolishly and willfully wandered away from the Lord at one point in his life. And here in Psalm 23, he's he's testifying, David is, is testifying how God faithfully went out after him and graciously forgave him and restored him and got him back on the right path spiritually. And so tonight we're gonna look at how God spiritually restores us and guides us Whenever we wander away from him, you may have heard of, of, a, of a term or a word that uh, isn't often used in the church today. Uh, I think it's a good word, even though you can't find many references to it in the scriptures, uh, but I think it's a word that really appropriately describes many of our experiences as Christians. It's the term backsliding. Anybody ever heard of that term? Raise your hand. If you've heard of the word backsliding, it's basically what it sounds like. It's backsliding. In other words, you, you, you commit your life to Christ and you begin to walk with the Lord and then you begin to backslide, right? You maybe lose some traction and, and, and you begin to slip back into some of your old habit patterns, right? It's called backsliding, falling away from the Lord, going backwards in your spiritual life. And uh, one of my favorite uh, authors and commentators is a man by the name of Peter Jeffrey. Uh, he's got a little commentary called Following the Shepherd through the 23rd Psalm. This is the same uh, man, by the way, ladies, who if you're studying bite-sized theology uh, with the women this summer, he's the same author, right, of that um, bite-sized theology. So listen to what he says about backsliding. I think he does a really good job of describing really the setting or the context of, of what David is talking about here when he said, he restores my soul, he guides me in the path of righteousness. He says, here we see a picture of a backsliding soul, one who knows the Lord, but allows his eye to wander in other directions than that which the Lord wants him to go. Backsliding is an insidious and cunning sin. No Christian wakes up in the morning and says, today I will backslide. Very often, we're well down the path before we even realize we're on it. Backsliding starts in the heart and mind long before it reaches our feet, our eyes, or our tongue. It may be that you never stop going to church. The outward form of religion is still in place, but the heart is backslidden. It does not necessarily mean that you get drunk every Saturday night. It means that your heart is not right with God. You do not have to be very old to backslide, and you never get to the stage where you're too old for the sin. It is a part and parcel of the spiritual battle every believer is in. He says, the backslider is one who's become weary of the fold of God. 
He has lost his relish for the green pastures and the pleasures of the world prove to be more attractive to him than the things of God. No longer is his eye fixed unwaveringly upon the shepherd. That is backsliding. And then he says this, before our feet go in the path of sin, our eyes have already feasted there. The grass appears greener in another field, and stealthily or boldly the sheep leaves the fold. Very often it's a subtle thing. We just stop praying for a few weeks or neglect our Bible reading. We cut out the prayer meeting occasionally, or on the cold Sunday morning we stay in bed until it's too late to go to church, and that is the beginning of backsliding. He says, when at first you go down this path, you feel free, but the joys of backsliding do not last long. Sooner or later, the darkness gets blacker, and the backslidden Christian realizes he's in the wrong. He's out of fellowship with his Savior, and his peace has gone. What does a Christian do when he realizes he's in a backslidden condition? He knows he ought to return to the shepherd, but he has lost his way, and the return is hard. He has drifted away from Christian friends. The Lord's day has become a bind. He has not prayed for ages, and the Bible has become a boring book. His sense of sin has become deadened and his conscience hardened to a man in such a condition. Restoration to his Lord and Savior will appear to be impossible, and it would be impossible if it entirely depended upon him. But David encourages us by telling us that the shepherd does the restoring. And I think that's very important that we understand that the good shepherd is the one who restores. He goes on, the good shepherd loves his sheep and even their backsliding does not lessen that love. The shepherd has pledged himself to allow none of the sheep to perish. He's committed to carry every last one of them safely to heaven. He's not going to lose them and with tender love he follows them in their wanderings and his eye is on them as much in the wilderness as it is in the fold. In other words, you may have wandered away from the fold of God. His eyes are on you just as much, if not more, right, away from the flock as as they were when you were in the flock. Was such a God as this? Jeffrey asked an appropriate question. Why should a Christian ever need restoring? How could a believer ever wander from the Lord whose heart is so full of love for him? The fact that a Christian does backslide shows clearly the vileness and power of sin. That someone who has tasted the grace and love of God in Christ and known the joy of the Lord in his heart could ever turn away from God and go back willingly into sin is almost unbelievable. And then he says this, let us be clear, we are not talking about falling from grace and losing one's salvation. Thank God that's impossible. But we are talking of a regenerate soul, someone who's truly saved, backslidden and in the grip of sin. And then he says this, there is no greater testimony than this to the power of sin. But at the same time, there is no greater testimony to the love of God than that he should be willing to have such a person back. And so we our backsliding proves, right, the power of sin, but it also shows the power of God's love to take us back. And that's what David was delighting in here in in Psalm 23. He was delighting in God's tender love and care for him uh, as, as a shepherd cares for his sheep. Verse one, you remember we said that uh, David starts off, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In other words, I have everything I could possibly need for life and godliness. And the rest of the psalm simply explains verse one. And he goes on to describe the ways that God takes care of him or took care of him and how God takes care of us who are his sheep as well. And so he recounted the blessings of those in God's fold, the blessings that we experience. The first thing he mentioned, we looked at last week in verse two, Uh, that he makes us lie down in green pastures and leads us beside quiet waters. So we are never lacking peace and rest. And if we're worn out, as we learned about last week, uh, a lot of that is our own fault, right? That we're not taking advantage of the green pastures and the quiet waters that, that we have available to us on a daily basis when we would just get away from the chaos of this world, right, and spend some alone time with Christ, 
And we, we, we talked about last week, even though we have a, a good shepherd who brings us to the best grazing lands near an abundant supply of water, we remain restless and discontent. And so consequently, we wander away from him thinking we can find something better to satisfy our hunger and, and, and our thirst. And we fail to rest in him by spending time alone with him in the word and in prayer. And so our soul languishes amidst this hectic, chaotic world in which we live. And so rather than cultivating intimacy with him on a daily basis, we're, we're pr- prone to rush through our quiet time, as we called it last week, or neglect it altogether. And when we rush through our quiet time or neglect our quiet time, this surely will spell trouble for our soul. And this is typically where backsliding begins, that you stop reading your Bible You stop praying, you stop spending time with the Lord, and that's the first step, right, down the path of backsliding. When we get out of the habit of being with the Lord on a regular basis, and that's typically when the Lord needs to restore our soul and lead us back to an intimate walk with him. And so that's what he's talking about here, is when when David says, he restores my soul. Now, the word restore, right? When we talk about restoration, restoring something, we know that it means bringing something back to its original condition, right? If you restore a piece of furniture, right? You, you kind of you sand it down and you kind of get it back to the original wood and you get, you get it all nice, you, you repair it. Or if you restore a car, right? You, you're trying to get it back to its original condition, the original paint, the original tires, the original engine, all that kind of stuff. You're restoring something. And so spiritually speaking, what David is saying here is that God ministers, ministers to us in, in, in a way that he brings us back to the original condition we were in before we backslid. And, and I think first what comes to my mind when it says he restores my soul, he's referring to how God ministers to, ministers to his downcast or disobedient sheep. Um, psalm 42, verse 11. You're familiar with this psalm, I'm sure. Psalm 42, verse 11. This is one that we can all relate to. The psalmist says this in Psalm 42, verse 11. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? So the psalmist is admitting that he's depressed. He's discouraged. He's in a spiritual funk Uh, He's talking to himself. Soul, why are you so bummed out right now? Why are you so concerned and and, and disrupted and disturbed within me? And then he, he counsels himself. He says, hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. And so we know that at times that our souls become downcast. Um... Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7, 6, that God comforts the downcast, the discouraged, and uh, if you have been reading along uh, in Philip Keller's book, A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm, you'll remember uh, the section that he talks about uh, this concept of cast sheep. Uh, it's really a parallel to what, Paul, what uh, David was saying here uh, about uh, our, our souls being downcast. Listen to what he writes about this. He says, uh, this cast down or cast, he talks about, that as an expression in the, in the shepherding world, uh, it's called a cast sheep. He says, he says, an old English shepherd's term for a sheep that is turned over on its back and cannot get up again by itself. The cast sheep is a very pathetic sight, lying on its back, its feet in the air, it flays around frantically, struggling to stand up without success. Sometimes it will bleed a little for help, but generally it lies there, lashing about in fright and frustration. He says, if the owner does not arrive on the scene within a reasonably short time, the sheep will die. This is but another reason why it is so essential for a careful sheepman to look over his flock every day, counting them to see that all are able to be up and on their feet. If one or two are missing, often the first thought to flash into his mind is one of my sheep is cast somewhere, I must go and search and, and set it on its feet again. And so he talks about how his shepherd, when he would come out of his house in the morning to tend to sheep, he would look up uh, in the sky for or any, any kind of buzzards or vultures that may indicate that there was a sheep that was in the process of dying. 
And he would follow those buzzers and those vultures to the place where he would often find one of his sheep cast, uh, which again was in a helpless, close to death, vulnerable to attack position. He said, nothing seems to so arouse the constant care of the shepherd and diligent attention to the flock is the fact that even the largest, fattest, strongest, and sometimes healthiest sheep can become cast and be a casualty. Right? Who, David was the last guy you would have thought, right, who would have become cast, who would have gotten himself upside down in a, in a difficult situation. But he talks about how oftentimes a, a healthy, a he- heavy sheep will look for a place to lie down comfortably in some kind of hollow or depression in the ground, and it may roll on its side slightly to stretch out or relax, and suddenly the center of gravity shifts so that it turns, its back, uh, t- turns on its back enough that the feet no longer touch the ground, and once his feet are off the ground, he's toast. He's history. He can't turn himself back over and right himself. And as he lies there struggling, Keller says gases begin to build up in the rumen as they expand. These tend to retard and cut off blood circulation to extremities of the body, especially the legs. If the weather is very hot and sunny, a cast sheep can die in a few hours. If it is cool and cloudy and rainy, it may survive in this position for several days. He talks about how his life as a shepherd was consumed on a daily basis with was looking out for these cast sheep. And then he said this, and I think this is very insightful, very helpful for those of us who maybe um, have a wrong view of God when when we are in sin, when we become cast, if you will, upside down spiritually. He said, many people have the idea that when a child of God falls, when he is frustrated and helpless in a spiritual dilemma, God becomes disgusted, fed up, and even furious with him. What he's saying is, that's not at all my heart as a shepherd, I wasn't frustrated, uh, or I wasn't, excuse me, I wasn't disgusted and fed up or furious with these sheep when they got cast. My heart was to help them. I had compassion on them. I wanted to rescue them. And he says this, when I read the life story of Jesus Christ and examined carefully his conduct in coping with human need, I see him again and again as the good shepherd picking up cast sheep. The tenderness the love, the patience that he used to restore Peter's soul after the terrible tragedy of his temptations is a classic picture of the Christ coming to restore one of his own. I think you're all familiar with that story, that account of Peter, right, who again was, was one of the strongest sheep in the fold, right? He was the lead disciple, the last guy uh, who you would think would fall. He was the last guy that would think would fall, right? Uh, and yet he did. He denied the Lord three times, sinned miserably, and, and, and broke the heart of Christ by denying him three times. But that wasn't the end of Peter. What did, what did Jesus do? Jesus sought him out. From the very moment he rose from the dead, he told Mary, hey, go tell Peter that I rose from the dead. He singled out Peter because he was in a process of restoring. He wanted to initiate a process of restoration, and as you know, that process culminated on the, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee in John chapter 21, when three times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And it was all part of a, a restoration process, giving him a chance to recommit to Christ for every time he had denied him. Three times he denied him. Three times he had the opportunity to reaffirm his love for him. And again, just showing the tenderness that, that, um, that, that Christ had for one of his own disciples. David himself, the author of Psalm 23, uh, knew of what he spoke here because he experienced a similar restoration by God after blowing it big time. And if you know anything about David's story, right, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, really chapter 11, uh, we find out that he was to be off to war, right? It was in the spring when all the kings go off to war, and he decided to stay home, and that's when he got himself into trouble, right? Up on the roof, looked down, saw a woman bathing. He wanted to find out. He lusted after her. He wanted to find out who she was. He sent one uh, one of his men, found out it was another man's wife, that didn't stop him. He invited her to the castle, right, to the palace. Uh, they had sexual relationships, uh, thought no big deal, nobody will ever find out until she finds out, right, that she's pregnant. 
Now he's got a problem. And so he went about covering up his sin. So he gets her husband to come off, off the battlefield, brings him home, wines and dines him, smooches him, kisses up to him, and says, hey, why don't you go home and, and, and be with your wife? Thinking, hey, if he spends the night with his wife, nobody will ever know that it was David's child and not his, right? Well, Uriah had more character than the king, right? And he slept on the doorstep, and David had to take it to the next level, and so the next night he got him drunk, thinking surely he'll go home. He's not going to be in his right mind. He's going to be inebriated, right, under the influence of alcohol. He'll surely go home to be with his wife. But he still had even more character drunk than David had sober, right? Again, he slept at the door of David's house and said, how could I be with my wife when all these men are out sacrificing and being on the battlefield? I won't do that. And so David wrote a letter to uh, um, Joab, his, his general, and uh, basically said, I want you to put Uriah at the very front of the battle lines where the fighting is the fiercest, and then I want you to retreat without him knowing it. In other words, I want you to kill him. And so he, he, he put that note in the hands of Uriah. Uriah carried his own death letter, gave it to Joab, and Joab did as he was commanded. They retreated, and Uriah was killed. And so after Bathsheba was done mourning for her husband, David took her to be his wife. And um, as you know, they had that baby, and the baby died. He had to deal with the consequences of that. But for a year, he covered his sin, hid it, tried to act like nothing ever happened that was wrong until Nathan the prophet showed up. Remember that? In 2 Samuel chapter 12, and he told him this little story about a sheep. Remember that? And uh, hey, David, you got somebody in your kingdom, and, uh, and he was a wealthy man and had flocks and flocks of sheep, and this, his neighbor had one little lamb. And uh, he had a neighbor come, or had a friend come and visit him. And so instead of killing one of his own sheep from all of his vast herds to give, you know, cook dinner for his guests, he went over to the neighbor and he made him give him his one ewe lamb. And he killed that one ewe lamb and he cooked it for supper for his guest. And David was livid. He said, that man should die. And then, of course, Nathan said, David, guess what? You're that man. And David knew he was caught. And at that moment, or at least close to that, this is what David prayed. This is Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only. I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you're justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Interesting, it was a common practice of shepherds in those days that if they had a sheep that would be constantly wandering away, just didn't ever get it. They just, just constantly, the, sheep, the shepherd was constantly having to go out and look for this, this wayward sheep. Uh, there would come a time when he'd actually take that sheep and out of kindness, break his leg and, and, and then splint it and, 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 and repair it, and then he would have to carry that sheep around for the next few months, right, wherever he went, uh, while his leg healed. But during that time, right, what would happen? That sheep would develop a close relationship with the shepherd, and then when that leg was healed, they'd put that, he'd put that sheep down next to him, and then guess what? That sheep would never leave his side. It's a beautiful picture of what God potentially, that could have been what he was referring to, let the bones which you have broken rejoice. He was referring to this idea that you broke my leg, God, not literally, right? But you broke my leg to teach me to walk humbly and closely with you. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Here you go, verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. 
If you notice the note at the beginning of Psalm 51, it says, a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. This is his cry of repentance. He's crying out to God. He's confessing his sin. He's repenting of his sin. He's begging God to forgive him and to restore him. And I like what he says there, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Look back at Psalm 32 because I think this is the parallel psalm. This is David's, uh, another psalm of David where he talks about the blessedness of forgiveness. And tell me if this is not a reference to him covering up sin for a year and then finally coming clean and and just the, the joyous relief that he experienced when he came clean. Psalm 32, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. In other words, sin, hidden sin, was sucking the life out of David. And as long as he kept it a secret, it was was sucking him dry, spiritually, and even physically. And then verse five, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, right? If we agree with God that what we did was wrong, If we confess our sin, he is faithful and he's just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. F.B. Meyer said this, that the blessed spirit of God is ever brooding over human hearts to do his choice and beloved work of reparation and restoration. Even in the book of Hosea that we studied this last year on Wednesday nights, In in Hosea chapter 2, verse 14, this is what Hosea said of God. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness, and speak kindly to her. He's talking about, God was talking about how uh, the nation of Israel was like a prostitute that had gone out and been unfaithful to her husband. God was the husband, and Israel was his wife, and she had been unfaithful to him, and yet it says that he would continue to allure her and and bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. In other words, he would try to woo her back. And whenever we're in sin, I believe that's that's how God deals with us. He's wooing us back to himself. You say, well, how does he do that? Well, I think there are several means that God uses to woo us back to himself, to to restore our souls. Uh, There there are certain tools that he applies to our minds and our hearts. And obviously the first one is his word. Is his word. That when you read his word or you hear his word preached, um, oftentimes you're convicted, right? You're confronted. And God uses his word to break your heart. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. So you want to know how, if you feel like you're in a backslidden state, right? How how do you get back to where you need to be? Well, the first thing you need to do is you need to get into God's word because God's word is perfect and it will restore your soul. Get back in God's word. We also know that not only does God use his word to woo us back to him. He also uses other believers. He uses other believers. Galatians chapter six, verse one, brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, in other words, if they're overtaken in some kind of sinful habit pattern, you who are spiritual, what? Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So oftentimes God will woo you back to himself through another brother or sister in Christ who he will send to restore you, to confront you about your sin and and lovingly admonish you and and help you to see your sin and confess your sin and repent of your sin. And then also, I think God will not only use his word and not only use other believers, oftentimes he'll use trials. He'll he'll use trials to, to woo you back to himself. 
Um, we would call this maybe the discipline of the Lord, right? Uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Listen to how the psalmist talks about it in Psalm 119, verse 67. Psalm 119, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. In other words, I went astray, you afflicted me, and now I learned my lesson, right? Hosea chapter 6 Verse 1, another reference to our study here uh, this past uh, spring. Hosea chapter, um, I guess it's last year, Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. He said, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. In other words, oftentimes God hurts us to help us. And again, it's not an act of cruelty, it's an act of kindness. That it's, ki- that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And so God will restore us through his word, through other believers, and through trials, through pain, and through suffering. And I love what Joel chapter 2, verse 25 says. It says that he'll restore to you the years that the, the locusts have eaten. Have you familiar with that verse? He'll restore to you the years that the the locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. In other words, Israel blew it. And they lost years of their life, if you will, their history, living in sin. But God was promising them that he would give back opportunities and privileges which they may have thought they had forfeited forever. Maybe you've wasted years of your life in sin, or maybe having to deal with the consequences of your sin. And you just think, you know what, I've lost this opportunity, I've lost this privilege. Well, God promises to restore those years that the swarming locust has eaten. That should be an encouragement to us tonight. Now notice back in Psalm 23, after he says that he restores my soul, he goes right on to say he guides me in the paths of righteousness. What's the connection? I think this is the connection. Don't miss it. Once we've been restored, God also works with us to make sure we keep from going astray again. You see it? He guides me in paths of righteousness. Literally, he leads me in the right paths. I I, I was on the wrong paths, right? And now I'm I'm back on the right path, and he's going to keep leading me on that right path. And that word paths there, when it says he... He guides me in the paths of righteousness. Those are very specific paths. Okay, these are well-worn ruts in the ground that have been created by constant traffic. And the idea is when when sheep kind of go to and from uh, to different fields and different water holes and different pens, and they they, they wear down a path. And there's a, there's this there's well-worn rut that they just go over and over again. In other words, in a, from a positive sense here, that the Lord helps us establish patterns of behavior, right? We're talking about habits here, um, that please him. He leads us in paths, um, spiritual ruts in a good sense, right? Patterns and habits that please him. Now, when we look at this verse, he guides me in the paths of righteousness, I think it's easy for us to just think simplistically or superficially about God's guidance. Whenever we talk about God's guidance, we typically think about making decisions about things in our lives, like what college we should attend, right, or what career we should pursue, or who we should marry, or what house we should buy, all important decisions, right? And we talk about God guiding us and leading us to make these decisions, but here David wasn't talking about leading and guiding us to, 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 to make these kinds of decisions, but more specifically, leading and guiding us as to how we live a right life, how, how, how we can be the right kind of person. And I think this is helpful because it kind of simplifies um, discerning God's will for your life, right? I don't know about you, but sometimes I kind of get my mind wrapped around the axle about, oh, what does God want me to do in this situation? And I make it bigger than it really has to be. I make it harder, a harder decision than it has to be. Because the point is, if you're being who God wants you to be, 
You don't have to figure out or worry about trying to figure out God's will for your life. There's no Bible verses, and this is particularly applicable to young people, okay? So if you're in high school, college age, listen up, okay? There's no Bible verses about where you should go to college, right? Or who you should marry or what job you should pursue. It's just not there, okay? So how are you to, to make up your mind about those things? Well, when you're living in obedience to his known will, which is this right here, making sure your, your life is lined up with the, the principles of God's word, when you're living in obedience to his known will, you can make decisions regarding his unknown will, which is like, where should I go to college and where should I live and who I should marry? You can make decisions regarding his unknown will with confidence, knowing that he will faithfully direct your steps. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will what? Direct your steps. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Again, that's not David's point here, okay? Because he's talking about living a righteous life. That's what he's talking about here. He's not talking about trying to figure out God's will for your life. No, he's saying, I'll tell you God's will for your life is that you live a righteous life, that you live right, that you do the right things as opposed to the wrong things, that you walk on right paths, not wrong paths. And so he says, he leads, guides me in the paths of righteousness. Now let's, let's recognize something right off the bat. Living righteously does not come naturally to any of us, does it? By nature, we are not righteous, we're unrighteous, we do the wrong thing. Romans 3.10, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? We talk about that, Romans Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says this, there is none righteous, not even one, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks God. So we're not righteous, so if we're to be righteous, um, we have to be made righteous, because we're not righteous, and that's the gospel, is it not? How, does un- how do unrighteous people become righteous? Well, God provides his righteousness through faith in the life and death of his son, Jesus Christ. We're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. That's what it says in Romans 3. Right after it talks about how there is none righteous, uh, no, not one. Paul goes on to say this in verse 21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. And of course, Paul talked about his righteousness that he was trying to earn, right, by his own good works. And then Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, he says in, that, it, that is, this was his passion, that he would be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own, derived from the law, keeping the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. This is what we call imputed righteousness, okay? The righteousness that is given us for salvation, okay? Again, that's not what David has in mind here, I don't believe, when he talks about leading us, guiding us in paths of righteousness, he's, talking, he's not talking about imputed righteousness, the kind of righteousness that, that we receive when we're saved. I think he's talking more about what's called imparted righteousness, which refers to the Holy Spirit's work in our lives as believers as we're being sanctified and changed and transformed in the image and likeness of Christ. In other words, Christ's righteousness becomes a part of us. It's no longer just this external robe, right? But it, be- begins, it begins to become who we are as we grow and mature in our walk with God. And uh, Paul talks about this sanctification process uh, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. You're familiar with this passage. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He's really talking about the sanctification process here, but don't miss this. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then this is affirmed again in Hebrews chapter 13. This is one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Now the God of peace who brought up the dead brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing, here it is, to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. 
Through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Listen, we don't have it in and of ourselves to be pleasing to the Lord. If we're ever going to be pleasing to the Lord, he's got to work in us that which is pleasing to him. And so in his grace and mercy, God doesn't leave us to our own devices, but he helps us to get where he wants us to go. He leads us and he guides us to do the right things and to live a life that's pleasing to him so that we'll bring him honor and glory. And that's what he, I think what David meant when he said, he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. For his name's sake. For the honor and glory of his great name. One commentator said this, that in the Hebrew culture, a personal name was often thought to reveal the character of the individual named. Here, the shepherd acts not just in order to preserve his character or reputation, but in a way that is consistent with the nature that name reveals. In other words, names cause either good or bad reaction. When you hear somebody's name, right? When you hear a name, good thoughts come into your mind or bad thoughts come into your mind, right? When you hear the name Ken Ramey, something comes into your mind, either good or bad. When people hear your name, okay, something good or bad comes into their mind. And it's really, it all comes down to our reputation, right? That's what comes into your mind. It's the reputation. We either have a good reputation or a bad reputation. And so God is all about his reputation. Listen to what he says in Isaiah chapter 48. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 9. He says, For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath, and for my praise I restrain it from you in order not to cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned, and my glory I will not give to another? In other words, God is passionate about what people think of him. And so the question is, what do people think of God when they look at your life? What do people think of Jesus when they look at your life? See, the point is that God's glory is wrapped up in our salvation and our sanctification. His honor is at at stake in how we live our lives, the paths we take in life, the path that you're on right now. You're either on a right path or a wrong path, and it's making God either look good or bad. You're you're either giving your shepherd a good name or a bad name. Why? Because the flock is a reflection of who? The shepherd. So what what does the watching world think about our shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, by looking at this flock? What do they think? Are we being a good witness to other needy sheep like ourselves who, who, are, who are lost like sheep without a shepherd, right? And, and hopefully we're living our lives in a way that, that they would be encouraged to want to join God's flock where they can be loved, they can be cared for by such a good shepherd as our shepherd. Why? Because we're repping his name in a good way. And so our heart should be David's heart for his name's sake. This is the heart of God. You know you're, you're growing in Christ when, when you are passionate about Christ's reputation and Christ's honor. That in other words, that's, that's the thing that, that, that wakes you up in the morning. You think about from the moment you wake up to the time you go to bed, you're thinking about how is my life honoring Christ? How can I honor Christ with my life? How can I bring him honor and glory to his name? That needs to be our burning desire. And so let me just maybe say something that you might not like to hear. Um, I, I think it's humbling to hear, but I think it's necessary to hear. And we need to ask ourselves, well, why does God bother with us? Why does he bother to, to restore us? Even when we wander away, why does, he, why, does he, why does he go after us? Why does he waste his time, right, going out after us for the hundredth time, right, when we've sinned? Why does he do that? Well, obviously because he loves us, right? He loves us. But lest we think too highly of ourselves, the reason why he comes out after us is ultimately because he wants to preserve the glory of his name. 
He values us, yes, but he values his reputation even more. He values his glory. And God is very jealous for his name. And part of that is making sure that all who follow him, right, make it safely home. And so that's why when he sees one of us drifting off, he goes out after us because he promised that he wouldn't lose a single one of us, right? And so he's going out after us. He's, he's making good on his name. That's the shepherd. That's the good shepherd. He never loses one of his sheep. Watch this. I'm going to go prove it to you. I'm going to go get him. And so like cast sheep, we're upside down, feet up in the air, right? We're toast. We're history. If he doesn't come, if he doesn't restore us, we're goners. He's got to do it. He comes to our rescue. He gets us back on our feet, and he gets us going in the right direction again, and he guides us in the right way in order to maintain his reputation. I think that's the essence of this verse. He restores my soul, gets us back on our feet, gets us back on the right path, and continues to lead us down that path for his namesake so that we bring him honor and glory. You know, maybe tonight you came here and you know you're way off track. I mean, you you know you're out of God's will. You are not honoring God. You're not heading down a, a right path. You're heading down a path tonight that you need to get off of and you need to get off it fast because it's dangerous, it's destructive, it's leading to nothing but pain and heartache for yourself and for everyone involved in your life and you're making sinful choices on a daily basis that are leading to to, to these bad habits. You're developing these ruts going in the wrong direction And, and, and if you don't get out of it, you're gonna get stuck there. You say, well, okay, that's me. You just described my life. What do I do? You confess your sin and you repent of it. And you've got a great example in Psalm 51, right? I don't know what you're up to. I don't know what you've done, right? But I don't think it even comes close to what David did, right? And God restored him, amen? And so I I would commend you Psalm 51. If you want to get off that path you're on, that wrong path you're on that's leading to nothing but, but the pain and heartache for you and everyone else and you want to get back on the right path, then you go home tonight and you, you, you get out Psalm 51 and you get on your knees and you pray through Psalm 51 and you make David's prayer your prayer. And God will be gracious to you and he'll forgive you and he'll restore you. And you can have that that joy and happiness, how blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven, right? That's what David said, Psalm 32. When you're done reading Psalm 51, read Psalm 32. And hopefully that'll be your experience. You can experience the joy of that, that guilt that you've been living under, right? is gone. The guilt is gone. Because he not only takes away your sin, he takes away the guilt of your sin. But as long as you cover it up, as long as you try to hide it, you are gonna be miserable. And so just come clean tonight. And we got a great example in the person of David. Maybe others of you are on the right path tonight. Um, you, you, are, you, are, um, you are in the center of God's will. You are exactly where God wants you to be. And, uh, and yet, you don't necessarily want to be there. And my point is this, that God knows the best paths to lead us on, to get us where he wants us to be. But oftentimes, they're not the paths that we would naturally choose for ourselves. I mean, you could be going down the path of cancer tonight, or going down the path of financial crisis, or maybe you're going down the path of dealing with a rebellious child, or maybe you're going down that path of divorce, not by your choice. And you're like, you know what? I, I, I want off this path. I don't like this path. Have you ever considered the fact that that's God's path for you? That's the path that God wants you on right now. If you've never read the, the book, Hind's Feet on High Places, classic little devotional book, tells a story of this, this little uh, deer 
who wants to go to the high places, a hind, right? Wants to climb to the high places. And, and so she finds this shepherd who promises uh, to, 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 to get her to the high places. And so she commits her life to him so that he will lead her to the high places. And instead of leading her up, he leads her down into the valleys, along the ocean side, through the dark forest. And, and she, she, he gives her these companions and, and her two companions are sorrow and suffering, Follow her around wherever she goes, sorrow and suffering. And she's scratching her head going, what's the deal? I, I, you, you told me you, you'd, you'd help me get to the high places. In other words, spiritually matured, spiritual maturity. And, and, and the shepherd says, trust me, I am. But my pathway isn't straight up. It's, 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 it's this way, down and around and up. And by the end of the story, guess where she's at? She's at the high places. God just had a different way of getting her than, than she thought. And so it may be that tonight God is calling you to submit to his plan for your life. That path that you're on right now. Just, just submit to it. F.B. Meyer says this. It's very well said. He said, let us not judge God by an incomplete or unfinished scheme. Let us have patience till the end shall justify the path by which we came. In the breaking dawn of eternity, we shall discover that God could not have brought us by another route, which would have been as expeditious or safe as the one by which we have come. Would that we had the faith to look up from every triumph circumstance, from every fretting worry, from every annoyance and temptation in the face of our God and say, it is the right way. Thou great shepherd of the sheep, lead thou me on. We will trust and not be afraid. We will follow you wherever you go. And we believe that we shall find that no step of the path was inconsistent with the leadings of your love, wise and strong and tender as the heart of God. In other words, just trust God that he knows what he's doing. And he's got, exact, he's got you exactly where he wants you to be. Keller has some attitudes that he suggests that we need to cultivate and ask God to cultivate in our hearts. If you're struggling tonight with maybe God's will for your life, um, he, he suggests seven attitudes. Let me just read them real quickly. And uh, don't try to write them down. You just get the book. Number one, instead of loving yourself most, be willing to love Christ best and others more than yourself. That's convicting. <laughs> Number two, instead of being one of the crowd, be willing to be singled out, set apart from the gang. Number three, instead of insisting on your rights, be willing to forego them in favor of others. Number four, instead of being the boss, be willing to be at the bottom of the heap. Number five, instead of finding fault with life and always asking why, be willing to accept every circumstance of life and an attitude of gratitude. Number six, instead of exercising and asserting my will or your will, learn to cooperate with his wishes and comply with his will. And then lastly, instead of choosing your way, be willing to choose to follow in Christ's way, simply to do what he asks you to do. I'm sure most of you have heard of uh, Fanny Crosby, the blind hymn writer. She has a hymn that she wrote, All the Way My Savior Leads Me. And this is what the first verse says. All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell. For I know whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are our shepherd, you're our restorer, you're our leader, our guide, and that we will be able to say one day when we get to heaven that you didn't lose us and you led us all the way home. We know that a lot of this has to do with us listening to your voice, heeding your commands. Lord, we know that um, when we stray away from you, 
we can't be fatalistic and just expect you to come running without also us repenting. And so, Lord, I pray that we would learn that delicate balance of trusting in you and waiting upon you to grant us repentance and faith, but at the same time, being like that prodigal who came to his senses and got up and went home. And you, and you met him. The father met him on the way home. And so, Lord, we are that prodigal on a daily basis. And we thank you that whenever we come home, you're there waiting with open arms. And there's even times when you go out after us and you pursue us like a lost sheep. A shepherd would pursue a lost sheep. And I just pray that you would... Um, Help anyone here tonight who's, who's straying from you, who's maybe even running away from you right now, that you would grant them repentance, that they would want to be like David and just come clean and confess their sin and that you would restore the joy of their salvation tonight. And Lord, for those who may be struggling with what your will is for their life, they're going through a difficult time. You called them to go down, to a, you called them to go down a hard path. It's a right path. It's a good path. It's the one that you've ordained for them to lead them to become more like Christ, to sanctify them. But Lord, it's a hard path that you would grant them the grace to endure that difficult road and that you would grant them trust and faith that you're right there with them the the entire time and that you have a, a perfect end in mind. And while they may not be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel, Lord, that they would, you would grant them light in your word as they read your word, Lord, that they would see promises that they they can cling to, that can give them hope um, to hang in there. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.